This Slate spoiler special is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code SPOILERS. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate spoiler special on Godzilla, the new reboot of the 60-year-old franchise by Gareth Edwards. And here to talk about Godzilla with me in the Slate New York studio are Forrest Wickman, who is a Slate writer. Hello, Forrest. Hey, Dana. And Chris Wade, who is our audio video producer at Slate and also a Godzilla expert who has just put together a comprehensive history of uh, the character of Godzilla. Hi, Chris. Good morning, Dana. All right, guys. So let's let's wail on this this Godzilla the way that it wailed on San Francisco. Uh, I have I didn't see it with you guys. We were all in the same screening, but we did not touch base afterwards. So I don't even know how you felt about it. Can you give me a quick reaction? Oh, I was in a different screening, and my screening, as I've just gathered from talking to some people that were your screening, was like really rowdy. Um, I loved this movie. I thought it was a total blast. I do not think it was perfect. I think the second half totally stomps all over the first half and leaves all of its intentions and sort of character arcs in the rubble. But it's pretty cool to watch it stomp all over the first half of the movie. Um, And I just thought it was legitimately awesome uh, using, you know, that word as it's meant to be. I don't think I'll be thinking about it a lot, but when I was in the theater... I was thinking that is really impressive. That is super cool. And that's basically what you go to these movies for. Yeah, no, so. you're right. The, the emotion of awe, actual awe, like being amazed yeah. at the grandeur and amplitude and size of something is something that's evoked by this movie. And that's not nothing when you're talking about a Hollywood blockbuster with CGI monsters because we've seen a lot of things that are meant to awe us in that context. Right. Uh, for once, I feel like I totally agree with Forrest in that <laughs> it's like just the right in that we have both just the right amount of appreciation for this. It's, like, totally fun. Um, I think that the first half does more, like, tense character, paranoid character building, and then the second half just kind of totally eschews that for, like, literally just watching battleships follow uh, Godzilla around in the ocean. But then, yeah, it does a great job of handling the giant monsters and letting you see just enough of them, and then when you do see them, showing them in ways that emphasize just how puny they make every bit of human like attempts at grandeur seem you know just destroying buildings like matchsticks and making humans seem like ants beside them yeah it's it's great it's a lot of fun okay well oh are you asking for my response yeah Uh, I think I was probably more lukewarm on it than you guys, but I did have a lot more fun than I expected to. I mean, I I think that this problem of the second half stomping on the first half is pretty significant, and we should probably get into it. And since we're spoiling, we can say stuff that I wasn't able to get into my review. Like, I think that there's a structural problem that this movie kills off its characters most interesting first, (laughs) right? It's like the people that you would actually want to accompany and see rescued from these horrible situations are all killed by other means in the first, I don't know, third to half of the movie, right? Yeah, to, to the extent uh, to which when Brian Cranston's character, here comes the big spoiler, we already basically spoiled it, when he dies... Very I, unceremoniously. Very, yeah. It's, zip him up it's in a body just bag. sort of, yeah, it's very, like, perfunctory. And then, yeah, to the, so it was so sudden and, and so casual that I was sure that, like, oh, they were just, like, pretending he's dead because they're actually going to make him part of this, like, secret in, group. In the, in the sense that in most Hollywood movies, nobody's dead for, like, main yeah. characters, big actors are never dead for long. You and were they like, don't die at that point in the movie. Like I mean, the point that Juliette Binoche dies is at least the setup. It's essentially, you right. know, the thing that gets us into the story. And I was sad when she left the story, too, because I think the Brian Cranston-Juliette Binoche couple would have been the people that I actually wanted to see save Honolulu and San Francisco yeah. from giant 
giant lizards. Yeah. And so she she dies at a sort of narratively sense-making point. But Brian Cranston has become a really major character. He's certainly the most interesting actor on screen for most of the movie. And he dies, I don't know, about an hour and a half in. At this Not very even that. Not even. 40, 45 minutes exactly. in. It's but like, there's just a sense of the air going out of the movie for me at that moment. Like, oh, no, now we're stuck with Aaron Taylor Johnson, who is just one of those interchangeable, neutral, handsome guys. I, I do want to say that I and I loved him in Kick-Ass. And I thought he would mm-hmm. had great, like quirky, neurotic ish, but still action hero personality. And I thought he was awesome. And in this, he is one of the blandest, most cardboard leading men that I have seen on screen in a long time. And he's not given a lot to do in the second half of this movie, but he brings absolutely nothing to doing nothing uh, in a way that I thought felt particularly eye-rolling in an era of bland leading men in uh, action movies. Yeah, I think that's a a bold claim, given how many bland leading men there are. I thought the guy in RoboCop, Jill Kinnaman, in that movie was way blander. I like Aaron Taylor-Johnson. Okay. He was not great. I will not say that. But you, I mean, the human interest kind of drains out of this movie slowly by drips. And there was this moment that I just realized it's just us and the monsters now, you know, and that's the full last hour of the movie. I mean, to their credit, the monsters are pretty cool. And the last big battle between, we haven't even gotten into the Motus yet, the last big battle between Godzilla and the Motus, who we should explain, Mm -hmm. in San Francisco Bay, is Is something to behold. Or Mutos. Mutos. Oh, yeah, I got my vowels backwards. Can we we say what it is? Yeah, what are they? Unidentified terrestrial organism, what, massive? Massive. Massive unidentified terrestrial organism, MUTO. So, so yeah, the MUTOs are these big, they're really well imagined, too. They're yeah. basically giant praying mantises, right, is yeah. what they look like to me, with those different pairs of little hooked arms. Yeah. Um, back to the point that brought us to MUTOs, I think it's from the moment, it's almost identifiable from the moment that Ken Watanabe says, let them fight, <laughs> that it's the, the importance of humans in the, in the movie is basically Dwarfed. negligible to the importance of giant monsters fighting. And well, you, you talk in your, your roundup of the history of Godzilla about wrestling and how there was a whole period of Godzilla movies that were explicitly based on, you know, wrestling matches. And that's a little bit what the last act of this movie yeah, becomes. Yeah. Um, in, like, the early stages of what would become, like, WWF-style entertainment wrestling, you know, moves like elaborate holds and throws, those became popular in Japan. And then those types of fights were incorporated into the uh, the suitmation, it's called, uh, it's form of miniatures and guys in suits fighting that Godzilla popularized and has been in a million other things since then. But yeah, there's a lot of like American style WWF wrestling, but it is fun to see like giant things wrestle against buildings. I think I have to say that I think that this movie does have a lot of love for the original Godzilla and the Godzilla tradition. I'm not an expert on it like you, Chris, so I can't see all the callbacks that are happening, but just the sheer lumbering nature of the way Godzilla looks. He is a digitized creation, but he doesn't have that kind of weightless look that a lot of digitized monsters do. And it seems like a lot of effort was put into giving him suitmation-like solidity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if anything, he's heavier. There was a lot of sort of snickering leading up to this movie that Godzilla had packed on a few extra tons or whatever. But um, but I think that's great because one of the things about early Godzilla when it's done right, and I think there were only like three or four movies where you could maybe argue that Godzilla was still very serious. I don't think adding color to the original Godzilla movies helped him at all, helped him that much. It like kind of instantly made him campy. But in the first two black and whites, there was a sense of a like inevitability to Godzilla. Like the real terror of Godzilla wasn't like the monster popping out of somewhere and scaring you, but that he was emerging slowly from the sea and none of the forces man can muster will ever be able to stop this creature from his just inevitable tear through a city, destroying everything in his wake. 
And I think that that kind of like creeping, lumbering terror is the essential terror to Godzilla. Yeah, right. Like the footsteps in the original are incredible, which yeah, I was yeah. reading were created by beating a drum with a knotted rope. You know, mm-hmm. so it was this very crude mechanism that made the sound. But there are these incredible reverberating footprints, you know, um, footsteps that people can hear coming from miles away. Yeah. And I think that that sense of impending destruction is uh, is somewhat captured. I mean, half, the second half of this movie, the first half of the second half of this movie is just them tracking where these three monsters are going to converge and like trying to get something there ahead of them to stop but just knowing that this place is going to be destroyed and that there wasn't much that could be done about it and just trying to uh constrain losses and i think that that sense of the disaster is coming it's just a matter of how we can make it the least terrible disaster possible is like the essential Godzilla-ness of Godzilla. Well, speaking of that, the the scope of destruction in this movie, and it does have a high body count for sure. It's not particularly graphic, and, you know, people are more like toys flying out of their way. But you do see some kind of Chiron on a TV screen toward the end that says thousands missing in San Francisco, and that's just San Francisco alone. We don't even know about Japan and Honolulu where other bad stuff has taken place. But in in terms of that, what did you think of the tone of this movie in terms of, you know, was it trying to have any contemporary political allegory? Was it a dark movie or a light movie? I am interested in discussing the politics of this movie because I think they initially seem like they're going to go somewhere interesting and then don't at all. Agreed. Because there's all of this stuff. So instead of uh, Godzilla being created by, you know, atomic testing, uh, Godzilla is just sort of nudged awake and he's this ancient creature. But he is nudged awake by the existence of a nuclear plant, correct? By a A submarine. Yeah. We well, so there is all of this nuclear stuff. We should get into the plot of this movie at some point Right, well. right. So g- going back to the very beginning, which is when Godzilla was on, uh, you know, asleep on the bottom of the ocean, he's nudged awake by a submarine, and then these, these, and there are these other monsters who are apparently also ancient monsters, I guess, and they feed on radiation. So there's all of this stuff about them, you know, chomping on atom bombs. I will say and, that the that the way that they justify the existence of these creatures, I think, is like the perfect amount of mumbo-jumbo like, ha- mumbo yeah. hand-waving. So the, the description is that they were primordial beasts from a time when the Earth was way more radioactive, which is a time, uh, and then as radiation decreased on the surface, they sank to follow the radiation, which gave them strength to the bottom of the sea. And this nuclear submarine, when it plummeted to a certain depth, alerted them to the fact that there was more radiation around, and they awoke to devour the radiation that man is... Creating. Great. And that's yeah. new Involves, to this movie, right? Yeah, that's not in the Godzilla legend that they yeah. eat radiation. Right. Exactly. Although and, it's in the same sense that the original Godzilla wasn't like specifically mutated by like a mutant iguana like in the stupid 1998 Godzilla, uh, but was a beast awoken by oh, the nuclear, te- okay, the, the nuclear testing. Um, I'm glad you corrected that. I mean, so regardless, there's all of these sort of resonances with, you know, atomic energy and um, what what is the other one? Oh, and there's all the this like tsunami stuff. There's this nuclear meltdown that's kind of like it's, you know, I think it brings to mind for a lot of us, certainly for Japanese people, uh, Fukushima. And, and very terrifying footage of a, of the flood that yeah. occurs afterwards, which is which you realize is not something you see that often. You know, there haven't been a ton of realistic CGI flood depictions recently on Except screen. Except for the impossible, which, which is Which I could not terrifying. bring myself to see because people said it was so scary. Yeah. Um, it, but it, nonetheless, all of that basically... I, so I thought maybe it was going to go to a global warming place. And then the ultimate message of this movie is just, oh, sit back and let nature sort it out, which nature being Godzilla, who takes care of these other monsters... And I don't know, that seems like not the right message for 2014. Mm-hmm. 
uh, right, because nature is not going to sort everything out if we right. don't do anything. Um, I mean, unless you're taking one of those very long Gaia yeah, kind right. of views where you say all of humanity will be wiped out, but it doesn't matter because life will survive in some form, which is a pretty it's, it's pretty much of a cop out for, you know, this. this yeah, movie. that's not a great and message even either. <laughs> at the end, after these motus, mutos, mutos, mutos that nested in the devastation of this uh, melted down nuclear power plant until they were ready to be born. And then headed east, first to Hawaii, and then eventually converging on San Francisco to find this atomic bomb that they were that America was going to use to destroy all of them. That's the plot in a nutshell. Even then, when Godzilla eventually destroys uh, both these mutos in a, a awesome fight, he's described as being an alpha pred- ancient alpha predator, and that's why he will come and find them and destroy them because they are his prey. But even then, he, you don't see him, like, eating them or doing what a predator would do. He seems to exist only by the end as some kind of ancient protector of humanity, which I don't think was what the movie wa- really wanted you to think. I just felt like if we saw him, like, dragging one of the Mutos back into the sea with him to f- theoretically feed You'd see on. what yeah. was in it for him. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, there is a funny—I mean, I know that is part of the Godzilla tradition as well, that some of the mid-period Godzilla movies imagined him as this kind of Earth's helper or something. But there is King another... of the monsters, savior of our city. <laughs> exactly. I was <laughs> yeah. about to cite that. Another cable news chiron that appears under footage of him sacking some city or other savior of our city. So, yeah, by the end, he's a little bit of a benevolent figure disappearing into the sea, which I guess is, you know— it, it leaves you with a warmer feeling than, you know, sort of we're all at the mercy of giant monsters and we're all doomed. But I think, Forrest, you're right. It doesn't it doesn't leave us with anything to hold on to in terms of human agency. Yeah. So that stuff about him being the savior of the city and so on resonates with there's like some competing views about Godzilla early on in the movie, whether he's a monster or what Watanabe says, a god. He refers to him as a power of nature and as a god. Again, not the right message. God will sort things out. Uh, that's not how I personally think things are going to work. Lizard ex machina. And I feel like there was such a missed opportunity here in, again, the very casual dismissal of Brian Cranston. Uh, Maybe he had more commitments to uh, all in the LBJ play on Broadway, which is great. And you should see it if you have a chance. I just wanted the way that the first act is set up with, with Brian Cranston as this paranoid deluded scientist trying to convince everybody that something is coming and we need to be prepared and you're hiding something and you hear all those lines in the trailer but it it doesn't he never like actually gets to talk to somebody who could be in power who could unveil this like bigger conspiracy for him all the stuff that you assume is going to happen with this classic like paranoid scientist character encountering giant government organizations and big shady research projects and what was the name of their their research group Oh, um, Monarch. Monarch. The, yeah, giant international research conglomeration. Like you were waiting for like the Monarch executive to come down and say something like, no, this was all for profit. And we were studying these creatures so we could make money off of them. And then the warnings of Ken Watanabe and Brian Cranston would come up again. Like that's the movie that this the first half of this movie was setting up, which I think would be awesome. You you want to see like the human drama of Brian Cranston and like some selfish oligarch trying to control these creatures but then he just dies, and then the monsters just fight. That would also reconcile the first and second halves, and that Brian Cranston would get some sort of resolution on the death of his wife, which is, you know, the thing that he is obsessively investigating. You know, essentially his character is just sort of killed off before he can he can ever see his work come to fruition. So that seems like a, a big mistake. And then it's, like, theoretically passed on to Aaron Johnson. Aaron Johnson has a hyphen in his name, right? Aaron Taylor Johnson. Aaron Taylor now, Johnson. Yeah. Um, 
It's, he took his wife's name or something, right? I think he hyphenated his own name because he used to be billed as Aaron Johnson, like when he played John yeah, Lennon yeah. in that Nowhere Boy movie. Um, so, and then it's like theoretically passed on to Aaron Taylor Johnson to like see to vindicate Brian Cranston through through like vindicating his research. But even that just becomes a, a MacGuffin esque like hide the bomb plot sequence where he's just like following this bomb on a train to San Francisco that they're planning on using to lure all the monsters with this one atomic bomb. And then destroy them all together. And there was also some very, for me, queasy stuff where they were like, well, we'll just detonate and one of a very powerful hydrogen bomb in San Francisco. And some San Franciscans will die, but at least we'll destroy these <laughs> monster, monsters. And there was like never any moment of somebody being like the pacifist, like, we can't think of all the civilians. We can't in good consciousness Is there do actually this. a moment of like cool civilian death calculus? I missed that. No, there's not at all. There's just like a... Uh, a map that they put up at one point that shows like the fallout range uh, of this theoretical bomb that they're going to detonate engulfing a vast swath of central California. And then at the very end, they also just put a like he gets the bomb on like a little trolley or trawler and sets it on autopilot and it <laughs> putters off into the bay for 10 minutes at like, I don't know, five to seven knots. I'm not great with nautical speeds and just outside San Francisco and goes like Thousands would, thousands to millions would still be suffering from acute radiation sickness at the end of this movie. If that, I, my understanding of atomic bombs is correct. That is particularly disturbing, given the the true story that was the basis of the first Godzilla, right? Which was all about hydrogen bomb testing in the ocean and its effect on fishermen in a boat floating by. Yeah, that was the most interesting part of researching the uh, original Godzilla. Is that the original Godzilla movie was very specifically designed as a response to a very specific incident in. Uh, in 1954, in which the Americans' testing of the largest hydrogen bomb America ever set off, the Castle Bravo test, uh, which uh, detonated a bomb 100 times the power of the yield of the weapons they set off in Hiroshima, that yield was so massive that it went beyond the containment zone that the Americans set up around Marshall Islands, and actually fallout from that uh, landed on a Japanese fishing trawler in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, uh, and all 23 members of the crew eventually got severe radiation poisoning when they got back to the mainland. And one of the members eventually died of complications from his radiation poisoning from this bomb. So there was a sense of this news story that um, that Japan can could not escape the devastation caused by um, American nuclear testing. And the producers, the original Toho Studios producers of Godzilla have been looking at movies like the re-release of King Kong in 1952, I believe, and The Beast from 20,000 Leagues, which came out in 1953, both incredibly popular internationally. And they wanted to do a monster movie and read the story and conceived this idea of this this product of, of nuclear testing lumbering back onto the soil of Japan and wreaking nuclear devastation on it as a very, very direct metaphor about Godzilla. And like in that Godzilla movie, there are scenes of of children being diagnosed with radiation poisoning in the wake of Godzilla's attack. It's it's, it's very, hard, very direct. And it's heavy. hard to overstress how, how brutal that movie is, yeah. really. I mean, things keep on happening in the original Godzilla where you think, surely they're not going to wipe out this, you know, innocent new group of characters they've just introduced. And every single time it happens. That's why it's so amazing to me that Godzilla has had this kind of longevity. I mean, of course, the elements that have been picked up and survived in Godzilla are not, you know, these very dark references to hydrogen bomb fallout in the original movie, but the image of, you know, a fun monster stomping on cities, but it still is, is odd to me that it, it bears those genes within it. Yeah, the the marketing of this movie actually advertised it, like quoted J. Robert Oppenheimer and all of this stuff and sort of 
I think it did kind of a bait and switch of like, oh, this is going to be as dark uh, and, you know, as uh, profound in some ways as the original. And then it ended up being more like the Sudmation battles. And I was actually okay with that. It was, we should talk about the battles because they're like the one thing that really matter about yeah. matters about this movie. I'll just say that I agree that this movie is trying to, I don't know, have it both ways, have its cake and eat it too. And it actually... Well, there's kind one, of, well, how is it even trying to have its cake? There's that one brief moment when Ken Watanabe gazing at, you know, out into well, the horror kind, says, like, man's arrogance or something. It's but. kind of the thing that we that we all are identifying as a disconnect between the first half and the second half of the first half being a more heavy, serious, paranoid, like, warning, nuclear warning movie that just kind of gives way to a big let the monsters fight it out and everything will wind up okay movie. And we all, I think we all three identify that that's like, Something that we thought was like kind of at odds and like gave us pause, but at least Forrest and I, in the end, were like, okay, it was. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the second half was entertaining enough to like, and like in the end, it's a big monsters fighting movie to be like, okay, it is what it is, and it oh, was absolutely. pretty good. At what absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, in talking about the old one, I want to pay tribute to the original Godzilla and what a great movie it is. But obviously, that degree of kind of writ from the headlines, contemporality, and also kind of national anguish. I mean, all of mm-hmm. those things are not going to be recreated over the course of yeah. sixty years in every retelling of the myth. All right, well, before we get any further into Godzilla, let's stop for a word from our sponsor. This episode of the Slate Spoiler Special is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code SPOILERS. Squarespace has a great 24-7 support team that does live chats during the week and has fast email support all day and all night. You can easily connect to your Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Instagram, etc., many more web and social services, and every Squarespace website has its own unique mobile design so that your site will automatically render to look beautiful on every device. You can easily connect to Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Pinterest, any web or social service you want. Every Squarespace website has its own unique mobile design so that your site will automatically render to look beautiful on any device. And Squarespace recently added e-commerce to their platform, so if you want to set up a shop and sell things, you can do so in just a few minutes. So again, to get your free trial and 10% off your first purchase at Squarespace, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code SPOILERS. The Spoiler Special thanks Squarespace for their support. All right, guys, back to Godzilla. Did you know that the original roar of Godzilla was created by taking a, I believe, a waxed cloth and rubbing it down a detuned upright bass and then playing it slowly in reverse? Wow. See, that's just another gesture at the score. We haven't talked about the score of the first one. Ikarube, is that the guy's name? The composer of the original Godzilla score? This is the most, the most influential horror score you can imagine. I feel like you hear really it in awesome. every movie now. Yeah. It's so great. Um, monster fights. Yeah. Can we just talk about our favorite? There are so many different moments in this movie where I could just name a moment and my inner eight-year-old would do like a Chris Farley show thing. Right, be like, wasn't that awesome? Let's each do one of them. So What's the yours? number one... On the list of wasn't that awesome, the number one item was for me would be the Halo jump, which was just a great. Not even it's actually um, one thing this movie does really well is is using silence, which is not something you would associate with a Godzilla movie, but it does it over and over again. Like earlier, there's a moment, or, or around the same time actually, there's a moment when Godzilla turns. And then you just get the gust of wind, like, coming over a bunch of the different characters' hair. And it's just dead silent, but you can hear the breeze from his tail. Great. And that's, like, one of those things that that really helps push home the awe of the size of this creature. That you can only see parts of it or, like, just, like, the very tip of its tail is, like, flying through the air. And then you suddenly get context that just this very tip is, like, the size of a jumbo jet. There's a lot of great stuff like that. 
Um, although very briefly about that, I will say there's been a lot of talk about how this movie is radical and how it doesn't show the monster until really late. Vulture did this post a couple weeks ago when they were, you know, in one of the first screenings that just said, this is what everybody's going to be talking about. Um, with Godzilla, and it was about how the movie waits so long. It's almost exactly actually, an hour. It's I almost did a exactly watch an hour. Pretty much all monster movies actually do the exact same thing, and it's totally what you should do. Pacific Rim didn't do it, but you know, Super Eight did it, and uh, you know, it, Alien and Jaws were sort of the classic well, examples. We saw that Muto at the uh, the power plant like forty minutes. Oh, ago. you yeah. see the Muto's way earlier. It's, original... it's at one hour that you first see Godzilla's face, and you see bits of him, like his fins. That's something this movie does beautifully when you see him swimming yeah. through the water. Um, mm-hmm. But you don't see his full on face until an hour in. And yeah, exactly. And it, which is almost exactly how long. I mean, the nineteen ninety eight or whatever Godzilla waits about as long. So you can still do that and have a really bad movie. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, so that yeah. I just the love Halo the jump. universal trashing of 98 Godzilla. That's the Roland Emmerich version? Yeah. I don't yeah. think I even ever saw it. Who? It's bad. And this is something that I mentioned before the podcast. Roland Emmerich, Independence Day is like the perfect disaster movie. And I don't think any movie I've ever seen is as perfect as that movie. And I don't know why his Godzilla was so bad because it's like almost the same thing. Like plucky upstarts against this seemingly on def- I don't know we can get into that later have I want to hear seen, about this Halo have you jump. seen 2012 I have not but I oh, bet I I'm a big it. advocate oh yeah <laughs> it destroys the world in great style it's very funny um, yeah the one thing I'll say about Independence Day my one theory because I similarly you know have I went to see Independence Day like two or three times in the, in the theater but to me I think the reason I have this association with Independence Day being so great I think it's extremely entertaining it was very effective it's mostly just that I was eight years old <laughs> um, I watch it almost Every Independence it's Day, fun. and it's still great. But we have those associations. I mean, I don't think Independence Day is as good as, you know, Jaws um, or Close Encounters, or which which this movie also name checks a lot. The name Brody, the name of the mm-hmm. all the main characters, comes from Jaws. Um, anyway, the Halo Jump. Halo Jump. Uh, it makes great use of silence. It uses the Legetti's uh, um, Requiem from two thousand and one. To just create this really eerie mood of them going right down into the monster. Um, and I don't really have that much to say about it except for that it was <laughs> awesome. I mean, the, the, I guess um, the other thing you could we could say is that Gareth Edwards is just, I think, pretty good. It seems like he studied his, his Spielberg and he knows how to, you know, let these sequences build, use silence, use sort of dramatic irony and the suspense of having the audience know something that the characters don't, like um, when there's the sequence where he's laying on a railroad and the monster pa- passes underneath. That is sort of like when the shark passes underneath the boat and Jaws. It was great. Yeah, you're right. He can he can build suspense in that way, and a lot of it does have to do with leaving a little bit of space, whether it's like auditory space or visual space for, for things to happen. I think my eight-year-old moment would probably be, and it's funny because at this point I was tired of the movie and ready for it to end, but that, that climactic Golden Gate Bridge moment uh-huh. where there's a bunch of people stuck on the bridge trying to escape the city. There's a school bus of children that includes, you know, the the child of our, our hero, Aaron Taylor Johnson's character, and, uh, and Godzilla. I think none of the Motus at that point, but just Godzilla come at the bridge and start sort of slowly tearing it apart and I think that that scene was beautifully done in large part because of the reactions you know it was the yeah. people's reactions to that scene that made Godzilla seem awe-inspiring and scary even though you didn't see that much of him yeah he does a lot of that Spielberg face stuff of like showing you the face of people looking at him beforehand so you know how you're supposed to react just like drop your jaw now and the camera's usually moving in right it seems like it's usually like a tracking shot closing yeah. in on the face yeah what's um, your moment Chris 
I do want to say about that moment, I sent this to you, you guys an email that I got. I was a little curious about the size of Godzilla. So I was looking up and under the Golden Gate Bridge, the San Francisco Bay is about 350 feet deep. And as portrayed in this movie, Godzilla is about 350 feet tall. Yet he is seen at about chest height uh, crashing (laughs) into the bridge. So now all I can imagine is Godzilla doing little tiny little feet uh, kicks in the water to keep himself propelled above the water as he uh, you can see if I wish to maintain you the illusion of, of awesomeness. Yeah. But it's great that he's exactly the same height as the as the San Francisco Bay is deep. I'm just picturing him with a snorkel, like walking yeah. on the bottom and you just see Godzilla's snorkel going under the bridge. Um, but as far as a. Uh, as eight-year-old moments, there were a lot of, like, really just great, like, build up, build up, build up, and then take all the air out moments, and then something awesome happening. And I agree with Forrest that the sound was really good. The Motus have this uh, EMP ability. We keep saying to... Motus. It's Mutos. Are we going to say, like, Mewtwo's? Mutus. <laughs> the <laughs> Mutos. The Mutos have this great EMP ability, which knocks out all the electrical Fields, which is great as a plot device because it renders man's machines useless. But then also every time they do it, you know, it's it's a monster invading and things being destroyed. And there's usually like machinery happening or you're like inside a tank or a battleship or something. And then they activate this EMP and everything is just silent. And all you hear is the distant sound of a monster like pushing over a building. And it's like great and eerie. Um I think that's that's basically ripped from uh, Close Encounters, which is like great. I'm so glad he stole it. But mm-hmm. the aliens in Close Encounters, like all the electricity goes out yeah. before they arrive too. It's great. It's classic. Um, and I think my two, I've got two, and I was sure that either of you would, one of you would pick one. But both when one of the, no, I'm not, never going to Mutos. Mutos. One of the Mutos, the flying one, is attacking Godzilla from behind, and he just does out of nowhere a tail slam into a building that's just really really impressive and i believe that that kills that one right that's the uh, final so, blow yeah that's like one of those great wrestling wrestling like finishing moves and uh, the second kill too the second kill too is, is the other one that's really great uh where, where he beheads it he rips its head off <laughs> yeah he, he prize he grabs the muto by its jaw oh, pulls right. it open and radioactive breathes straight into its <laughs> gaping maw and basically explodes this monster's head off of its body. And that's when he should have... Or no, he collapses after that. There's a moment where you think he Godzilla dies. He keeps passing out. Yeah. He passes out like tw- at least twice. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, is Godzilla dead? And then he just wakes up five minutes later when the plot needs him again. It's, yeah, very, it's very strange. And also, so why does... Uh, Dana and I were wondering about this earlier. Why does he... I mean, dramatically, it's great that he does the fire breath at the climactic moment. But... In terms of the internal logic of the movie, is there any reason for that, that he doesn't use the fire breath? Or it looks really minty, actually. Pres- <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of a, that like a, what is that gum? A Take 5 gum commercial? Or, yeah, right. Uh, like you know those... breaker com- kind of stuff. You Those gum commercials where they're like in a, uh, on a giant bass speaker full of ball bearings or something. You know what I'm talking about, right? Have you ever seen these? <laughs> I, I understood what you were talking about until you started talking about the ball bearings. Okay. I'm missing something. Some of the listeners will definitely be like, oh, yeah, I know that gum. I believe it's called like Take 5 or something. Take Street 5, five the, or something. Like, yeah. Um, but yeah, he. I must take a lot of energy to activate your radioactive breath. I do love that they kept the convention of his fins glowing when uh, the radioactive breath is a- is activated. So I guess we're all satisfied enough with this Godzilla that we would be happy to see a sequel if directed by Gareth Edwards. Do you both feel that way? 
I yeah, I do. I do think you know the pleasure of monster movies is so much in the reveal that it, it's a little hard to do a sequel because you've already shown the monster. So where do you go from there? You show another monster. It starts to get a little familiar. But uh, but yeah, Gareth Edwards is I I enjoy I'm enjoying his couple of movies. They're extremely similar. His first movie, Monsters, is worth checking out if you liked this movie a lot. Um, it's but done for a much smaller budget. It's right? done for a much much smaller budget, and it just has a lot of elements that it's almost like an early draft of Godzilla. There are moments where there's a quarantine zone that isn't actually dangerous, and there are monsters that light up in almost exactly the same way. Um, it's it's very similar. So I don't know what else what else he will do, but Godzilla it seems like it's maybe where he belongs. At any rate, it seems like he has mastered action film language, which is which is makes it exciting to see whatever he does, Godzilla or no. Yeah, I would love to see him do another movie. That's an action movie on like a much smaller scale. Like I think he would be. I would love to see him do like a um. Uh, like a serial killer horror movie, like a Halloween-esque uh, horror movie. I think that he could handle that kind of, like, tension and claustrophobia uh, really well and, like, kind of creeping horror of the inevitability of, like, a supernatural killer. Um, I would love to see that. I'm pretty sure he'll be pegged into doing giant summer blockbuster-esque action movies until one of them fails and then he'll never work again and he'll have one of those tragic, tragic careers. But good on him for right now. Oh, no, I hope not. We wish you well, Gareth Edwards. <laughs> yeah. All right, guys, thanks a lot for coming in to spoil Godzilla with me. Come back soon. This is great. Thanks. thanks. Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.